Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig. And uh, today we're going to give you some important information, um, starting with the executive director of IACP, as it's called, which is really the International Association of Culinary Professionals, a very large group and a very important group. Um, and, they, and the reason for it is they're in the Berg. They're going to be in the Berg. And, at the end and of the Tanya month. Steele, who's the executive director, as I said, is going to tell us all about it and what else going on. Sounds like a really fun and exciting time. And then we and then we have a couple of special nationality, I guess. Oh yeah, we have our call. good friend JP. And and then, and, and, then and, we, and then we have our good friend Demetrios. Yes, Demetrios. So, so, so hang out, hang out Greek. for some, hang out for some Irish and some Greek before the program is over. But, but first up, the important news about the IACP conference and how you, how you can attend, all that kind of stuff from Tanya Steele. We're going to be talking to Tanya Steele, who I should, I should have met a long time ago. Uh, she's really a, a star in the food world. And she's done a lot of things and been around for a while. Um, and we never sort of run, ran into each other. I don't know why. But it's good meeting you now, Tanya, in advance of this um, IACP conference. Um, oh, thank you, Anne. It's good to meet you. I can't believe we've never met in all these years. It's crazy. Tanya, <laughs> are you here yet? Are you, are you in I'm Arizona not. Yet? I'm still in New York, uh, okay. but I'll be coming to Pittsburgh uh, just before the conference, which is March 27th through the 29th. Right. Um, and, uh, and the conference is. Let's get it introduced. Right. Now, let's first of all, Tanya's oh. title, because she runs the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Tanya. Tell I'm the little. executive director and CEO of the International Association of Culinary Professionals, or as we say, IACP. Right. Um, and you can find us on IACP.com. Good. And uh, you know what I was trying to remember? How old is this organization? It was started, I believe, in 1978. It's 42 years old this year. Um we were started by some really famous people like Julia Child and Ann Willen and um, Jacques Pepin and Shirley Cora and all of these great food oh, professionals. Nice. Um, and they started it because they wanted a way to network and meet each other and help each other's careers and build each other's skills. And that's how this whole thing started. And it's, it's grown. I mean, it's huge now, isn't it? It is. We have members from all over the world, um, and it's all different types of food professions. So about half of our organization um, is made up of food media. So we have reporters and writers from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and Food and Wine and Bon Appetit and um, Eater and um, all of these different and wonderful on, organizations. And on the menu radio, and the other of half of the organization um, is made up of culinary instructors and chefs and um, artisan food purveyors and bloggers and social influencers. And you don't have to be a professional um, making all of your money in the food world to be a member. You can be someone that's trying to get into the food world, that's trying to become um, a food professional. And this is actually a great way to do it because you're going to be able to meet all of these people that will be able to help your career. 
Yeah, it's, it's sort of a first stop, I think, if you're launching a career in, in a culinary field, wouldn't you say? I'd like to think so, yeah. Okay, so um, I don't know how it ended up being in Pittsburgh, but we seem to be landing a lot of, um, of conferences lately. Um, we had the American Cheese Society two years ago, and we had the we didn't have the beer, but we had some a section of beard people here. And so it's the 2020 conference is in Pittsburgh, and we want to note the, the uh, it, it runs from the 27th, which is a Friday, right, through, yes. through the 29th, which is a Sunday. And what exactly is going on? You have so much planned. It's, uh, you're touching all bases. We are. We are trying to have something for everyone who loves food. So um, on Friday, uh, we're having a, um, a really incredible day. We're, we're having our um, members do workshops and tours and classes. So um, everything from ex- um, exploring the Millville area to going to the Andy Warhol Museum to um, trying the best dumplings and pierogies with um, Hal B. Klein from Pittsburgh Magazine um, and Beth Krakauer from the Wall Street Journal will be leading the Millvale tour. Um, we're also doing a Falling Waters, Delalo Market, Green Dance Winery, Jameson Farm uh, yeah, they're, they're tour, fabulous. which will be they're, exciting. You'll and love that. Yeah, and then we're also doing a, a really cool uh, butchering workshop with Justin Severino who's one of your great, fantastic chefs um, in Pittsburgh. Um, and so we've got a whole host of different programs on Friday. All of these things are open, by the way, to anyone in Pittsburgh for a, um, a discounted rate. Um, we have provided a limited number of discounted day passes for Pittsburghians um, to get in on the fun and meet all of these great people. Um, but Friday night, uh, at the Omni William Penn is the beginning of the conference, um, and what we're doing is having a huge cocktail party in this gorgeous ballroom at the Omni William Which Penn. Which one is the urban we're room? Having, yeah, and, and then we're having it's the gorgeous. Of Pittsburgh. So we're having all of these celebrity chefs from around Pittsburgh come and serve samples. Delicious uh, Pennsylvania wine um, wines will be served. We're going to have Wiggle whiskey um, served. And um, after that, we're going to have this uh, exclusive premiere of Padma Lakshmi's new Hulu series, which is going to be on immigrant immigrant cuisine. And that's just Friday. That's just the first day. So <laughs> and and, and this, we're going to be the first people to see this um, for Padma's. Exactly. The first exactly. People. And then... Saturday, we have incredible lineup of things. Um, it begins with an incredible breakfast and um, a keynote from some great organizations in Pittsburgh about how Pittsburgh is um, levering the innovation uh, um, that is going on in the city for a stronger food system. So we have some amazing um, local leaders on that panel. Um, Did you see that Leia got the, some, the, the big award? Um, it's being presented at the Kennedy Center in D.C. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, and I mean, her uh, people previously getting the award were things, people like Melinda Gates. I mean, I think mm. there were five people. It's big time. Mm-hmm, she mm-hmm. also presented in, at the um, uh, at the United Nations. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's big time stuff. Amazing. <laughs> She's so, so energetic. Cool. 
Yeah, she's great. They're just they're um, just they're just launching in LA. I mean, they're going they're going big time. They're all wow. over the place. Yeah, I don't that know is it, so cool. It's called four one two food rescue here. Right, right, I, I right. I imagine it's probably called the area code of LA, which slips my mind yeah, for just is, a second. Is four one? I'm trying to remember where four one two is. Well, four one two is Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Oh, it is. Oh, yeah. that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was trying I was trying to remember what LA is. Oh, L.A. is all, they've got like eight different area codes now. Right, right. Um, but anyway, we have other amazing things. We've got Kate Lasky um, from Apoteca, which is a fantastic restaurant in yeah. Pittsburgh. Um, doing vegetarian. A, yes, vegetarian. Eastern European vegetarian. <laughs> yeah, we have a lot of cooking demos going on, so that's another thing. You can eat a ton of food while you're at the conference. Um, Dory Greenspan, who's a beloved um, food person and has written a lot of books, she's going to be doing um, an interview. We've got a lot of cookbook signings going on, um, things about how to translate your culture into a cookbook, um, how to do great food photography. We have Padma Lakshmi doing a really fascinating keynote um, at lunch on Saturday, um, all different things about how to maximize your income, um, food trend predictions, uh, Pennsylvania wine um, uh, tasting. Um, and then Sunday we also have uh, the same kind of thing. We have lots of different uh, panels, discussions, um, things that will help people build their career, cooking demos, cookbook signings, you name it, we've got it. Well, I mean, it's it's packed. And now, they, now this packed. this is all. Like, let's before we forget, let's let people know that it's actually going to take place at a premier hotel right in the heart of the city of Pittsburgh, called the exactly. called the William yes. Penn Hotel. The yes. Omni William. It's now the Omni um, William Penn. Yeah. Yep. When when we stayed there, I don't want to say how many years ago it was. Hurricane. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was it was it was still the William Penn Hotel. And the Aluminum Company of America had bought it about two or three years before. Oh, my goodness. And they were in the process of trying to decide whether to fix it up or not. Mm-hmm. And the, the funny, the funniest thing is for, for 40 years thereafter, whenever I was in that hotel, I saw the same elevator person. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Amazing. It was so old fashioned. It was so old fashioned so that they had to have somebody operate the elevator. You know, we, what, something we haven't talked about that we should mention is um, very coveted awards are, are distributed by ICP. Right. Let's talk a little bit about that. That's right. We have um, – so there are James, Beard, James Beards for the chefs <clears throat> and the ICP um, for cookbook authors and food media um, and food photography. So we're very excited about it. It's always a very glitzy award. We have Rocco DiSpirito, who is a famous celebrity chef. Um, yeah. <laughs> he's going to be one of our award hosts. And um, that uh, people can also come to. Um, they can go to ICP.com and click on the link on the homepage um, to the conference. And there's an evening pass. There's local passes. Um, and they can come see some very fancy uh, food personalities come and uh, hopefully win. So it's going to be great. There's going to be a big cocktail party beforehand. Um, and we're going to be, you know, very festive attire, so it's going to be exciting. And that, and that one's on, and that one's on Sunday, right? That's on Saturday night. Oh, Saturday night, okay. Yep. I was so that's going to be glitzy, not black tie, though. It's not black tie, no. no. Yeah, I, mean, I remember when all of these um, chefing and, and culinary programs 
it was always chef's attire, like blue jeans and blazer. Even the world of now they're all wearing evening dresses and black tie. <laughs> That's funny. How's all changed, huh? Oh, dear. Well, I mean, what else could we say about this? I mean, they address all the issues. I mean, when we get down to it, where we are with uh, hospitality in the culinary world is about all these issues, and we have a slew of them to deal with. Yeah. And this is your best chance at, uh, yeah. I mean, you have a lot of celebrities, but you're also going to be dealing with some of the issues that um, the, the people in the field are dealing with. And I think that that's something that, um, where else can you get it? You know, you're not going to actually even get it on, although I guess uh, Andrew Zimmern is doing something with issues now, isn't he? Yes, he's got a show on CNN um, about all the different things. Yeah, we've, we've got um, at the conference, we're talking about climate change, um, we're talking about food waste. Um, we're talking about, uh, you know, cultural appropriation and just all these different um, things that are going on in the food world. And there's plenty going on. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's well, never been a more vibrant time to be in the food it, industry. This is true. This is true. And um, I, I think that you're going to have your hands full, so I'm glad you had time to talk to us a little bit about it and get the word, the word out to the people right. who, who, uh, who want to. And, I mean, you can come in and, and go to the conference if you're not in Pittsburgh. <laughs> There's no problem with exactly. that. Exactly. Oh, yeah. The, yeah, hundreds of people are coming from around the country. Um, but, yeah, we're doing a special thing for Pittsburghians if they want to come. Now, now, what's the website so that people can find... Yes, what what alternative they want to pursue? Yep, is IACP.com. Yeah, see, I always used to go uh, and then, up and then I used to thought it should be a dot .org. Well, now, hold on a second. And from that point, where do they go then? If, say, if they get They'll to the see, main right page. Right on the home page, it says, um, uh, you know, tickets to, to the conference, click here. Okay. So they just click that right Got there it. on the home okay. page. Well... Tanya, thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk to us and get the word out. And um, I'm wishing much success for this conference. And uh, we'll be there, and, uh, and and we're going to enjoy every minute of it. <laughs> and, 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 and finally, we're going to get to meet face-to-face. That's right. Well, okay. thank you so much, Ann and Peter. It was wonderful talking to you. You too, Tanya. Thank you. Thank you. And stick around because it's Irish after the break. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. And next up, we'll be talking to a dear friend of ours, um, and we're going to be talking about his cookbook. And it's J.P. McMahon, who uh, uh, goes by uh, on Twitter, 
uh, eat Mr. Galway. I mean, Mr. Mr. Eat Galway. <laughs> oh, is that is that what it says? Yeah, meet okay. Mr. Eat Galway's is uh, handle. Well, we've eaten Galway plenty, Galway yeah. plenty of times, but he he goes the whole of Ireland. Oh, he and, uh, well, he's from Dublin. Yeah, he, or the other, at least he's from the other side. Of but the he's island. got but he's got great depth, great knowledge of of Ireland and it's both its traditional and it's more modern cuisine. So and he's already working on a, a second volume <laughs> of course there's so much to know about it. Uh do yourselves a favor and go to Ireland and sample this wonderful cuisine and get to know some of these I love the chefs in Ireland. They they're great storytellers. Anyhow, let's listen to JP McMahon. Yeah, yeah. Hold on, on a second. There's, there's a song that that I could inflict on you if we were not careful. It starts out, "If you ever go across the sea to Ireland." <laughs> oh, stop well, it! Well, 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 hopefully, we're, hopefully well, we're that across, song will not accompany the book. We're across the sea to Ireland right now for a particularly special reason. And go ahead, dear. Yeah, well, we're talking to our, our good buddy J.P. McMahon, and J.P. Um, this was a long time coming, but it's certainly making a sensation. Aren't you surprised and pleased? I'm talking about the Irish cookbook that was um, just released. Absolutely, yeah. And it was a long time in um, in fruition. A bit like Irish food itself. It's been a it's been a long time coming, but hopefully, uh, hopefully, it's here now, and hopefully, we we can develop it. Yeah. Now. Um, the I read the introduction and um, uh, uh, the history. There's a lot that's really not known about Irish food, right? Yeah, well, I think I think the the long legacy, and I think the fact that people have been there um, or here rather ten thousand years, and there's been like a lot of food eaten in that in that time, and um, um, I think that uh, that we just need to, uh, I suppose think about it in, in more detail. Well, I mean, I think the one thing that you get across is that Irish food is inextricably tied to the land itself. And and the land yeah, no, has not yeah. always be, been hospitable, right? No, yes. I mean, some of it is very inhospitable, like uh, like, like Connemara, I mean, uh, we're, which we're, we're in we're in now and it's been raining for two weeks and it hasn't stopped and uh Often, uh, I think often the land, the good land is, is associated with the east of the, of the, of the country and, and often that was associated with the Anglo-Irish tradition and I suppose the, the, the English invasion of Ireland and uh, there, there's so many different layers and, and, and what we consider Irish and what we don't consider Irish and I suppose I took a very broad view of it and to try to think about it, well, if, if food was, was eaten in Ireland, well, that makes it just as Irish as anything else, and I know that's that's a very broad view. But at least then you you, you don't have conflicting traditions, whether it's a Viking or Norman or okay. a British or um, whether it's a French. And there's so many different elements there, and I try to represent them all through through different recipes, and also to try and showcase the kind of contemporary attitude towards Irish food that we that we have in an ear that we're we're trying to produce a, a food that is very product focused and very very much up the land and the sea. 
Well, I mean, I think that Irish food is among the world's least understood, to be perfectly honest. And, of course, I owe it to you to expose me to all this food for how many years now, coming to Ireland and eating the food. So much I didn't know about it, and so much the world has a very narrow view of what is Irish food, right? Yeah, absolutely, and I think that, I suppose the different stereotypes that we have of Irish food, I mean, you could say the same exists of different countries like Spain and Italy as, as well. I think it's so much more than, than uh, like, whether it's lamb stew or Guinness or the potato or different stuff. I mean, we have uh, so much different shellfish and fish and game and uh, dairy and a uh, whole artisan cheese industry. And, like, it goes on and on and on. And we... Um, been a, a great baking tradition as well so it's just oh, yeah, uh, there's so many di- different elements and uh, I mean it was the book could only be so long so for me it was uh, it was important to try and uh, squeeze as much into it as possible I think there's about 480 recipes in it but I, I actually had written about 900 recipes to, to try and uh, encapsulate it but the book had a certain uh, had to be a certain size so we we had to go through and pick a really different recipes that we thought encapsulated the, the different traditions of um, of Irish food. So that was it. It was important for us. Well, your chapter organization is out of the ordinary. I mean, it's really particular, I think. Um, like, the, oh, well, uh, Yeah, I mean, I didn't know. Yeah. I mean, I know about butter and dairy, but I didn't realize that the very first chapter is going to be about eggs. It, it, yeah, well, I mean, I, I wanted to try and I wanted to try and uh, to 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 showcase each area, and even we 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 again, the thing that in the context of space, I, we had to cut out some sections because the section on honey again was was absorbed into uh, other sections and that. So there there were more sections, but unfortunately, um, due to space and that. But that, that's what I mean. I mean, the the book is a is a little a window. Onto oh, yeah. onto Irish food, like it's just the beginning of uh, of of looking at it, and then hopefully this will be a stepping stone for uh, for other authors and other chefs and other um, uh, food critics to um, to think about Irish food in, in greater detail. I mean that's the, that's really what what it is in, in essence is that it's just a little uh, snapshot at this uh, at this time. Yeah, you you depended on earlier writers. Um, to, for information about the, the history of Irish food and, and, and different recipes. You quote, Dear Sweet Myrtle Allen, so much I was getting sad just thinking about how much we all miss her. <laughs> yeah, no, Myrtle and so many other uh, Irish Dorina, writers, like yeah. Uh, Mo- yeah, Maura, Maura Laverty, Dorina, right. um, uh, uh, Peter Gibbon, Monica Sheridan. I mean, there's so many... Uh, Greece, um, uh, female Irish food writers and, and, uh, and chefs and cooks that, uh, I also wanted to, like, to, 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 I suppose, dedicate the book to them because often it's kind of seen as a very male industry or masculine, uh, um, uh, place. And it, it, that's not the case at all when you look at 20th century Irish writing about food. I mean, most of the, most of the people are, are women and, um, that's what really what's what strove to um, create it, and Merkel is certainly um, is certainly one of them, and she Ooh, was like I think sure. the, the the godmother of uh, of Irish food, yeah. and in, in terms of trying to focus stuff on on produce, you know. 
Now you've got two particular groups that we should mention that must surely be your heroes, the fishermen and the farmers. I mean, with, without, without them going out to fish or raising peculiar things that are animal and vegetable on their farms, you, you wouldn't have the variety. You, you, you'd, you'd be, still be eating potatoes like you did in the 1840s. No, absolutely. And I think it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, of course it's, it's many generations, but I think the recent, um, the recent generation of farmers and fishermen, the younger guys who want to, uh, I suppose showcase the, the, the product. I mean, they're what we, what, what we use every day in the restaurant and different like the likes of Ronan Byrne, who's a chicken farmer, um, uh, Brendan Allen from Castle Mines is pork and beef and lamb. I mean, I could go on and Stefan, the fishmonger. Like, they're all really, um, trying to get the best product to give to, to chefs to, to represent. And often, often it's not, it's not acknowledged. And I think, again, that was one aspect that I, that I wanted to make sure to, uh, to address. That often when you're writing recipes, you, you forget about the, where the, the primary ingredients come from. And, uh, um, again, it was important to try and to get at that. Now you you said you were in Connemara, and we on our, on our last trip, we we had a very engaging visit with the Connemara Smokehouse. Oh yeah, which is down down the end of the road, and then still a piece <laughs> to get to get there. But 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 the owner who took over the operation from his father, he said, "I pick every fish that comes into my smokehouse goes through my observation." Because I take it, yeah, I take it that seriously. Yeah. So I'm teaching my son what what my father taught me, and th- that does that doesn't happen just any place. No, no, and I think that's a that's a good example where you have like a, a four, I think four generations of of um, of uh, I suppose fishermen uh, producing smoked salmon, which is like again like a world renowned product, and um, it's. Uh, it's it, 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 it's a great stepping stone into the, the different the many different fish that we have and the many different processes we have around whether it's salted ling or smoked coolie or just loads and loads of different ones and again they're, they're, they're they are in the book and it's just to try and try and just to point to them and again there's, of course people can further investigate themselves but it was important to try and just mark each one to show how connected we are. And salting fish is probably a good example because that connects us to not only the Viking tradition but also the Basque tradition. And we often, I suppose, think of, when we think of national cuisines nowadays, we often have a tendency to, to, to over-divide and sub-divide and, and we forget how, how connected different um, different places are and, and, uh, and, and certainly in the past how we would have been even more connected. Now, let's do a shout-out for two of my favorite heroes in the Irish culinary tradition, let's hear it for oysters and lobsters. Woo-hoo. <laughs> oh, absolutely! And uh, it always, it always, um, it always gets me how uh, the oyster is, is, is under uh, underappreciated. Um, I think in um, in Ireland and uh, and and the lobster and the lobster too and. I think it's it's uh, for me the the oyster is is one of our uh, one of our central foods and it's, uh, it's 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 something that's been eaten since the very very beginning. Like it, you could you could argue it three dates people and so 
it's um it's an important part of our, our heritage and lobsters too. I mean lobsters have a have had have been I suppose up and down in terms of their um people's um I suppose people's interest in them. They were a food of the poor where the people wouldn't go near and now they're very much a food of the of the of the of the of the well off or because they, they cost money now. So um, yeah, it used to be um, prisoners in here in this country. Yeah, and um, and uh, very much. I mean, particularly Islanders would have lived off lobsters and had so many lobsters that they wouldn't have wanted to see a lobster <laughs> um, at all. And uh, I'm eating one fisherman on the island on the Iron Islands who uh, who was a lobster fisherman and and didn't like didn't eat them at all. He said he'd rather a piece of beef, and I was like, "That's uh, it's it, that's kind of a good, um, I suppose, a good uh, snapshot in terms of often I think we we don't appreciate what we have until until someone else comes along, and, and it is this kind of idea that I think colonialism plays a part in that where we have we have been um, I suppose selling commodities for so long as opposed to um, as opposed to appreciating products and so literally selling shellfish. For um, a couple of hundred years to to the continent without actually really appreciating it ourselves. F- well, let's f- look at something. Hold on, let me let me inject a funny story here from one of our trips to Ireland. And uh, we first first time on that trip we had lobster. It came from the far southwest, and I can't remember the name of the town. It was Castle something or other. So we had a lobster from there, and then and then we headed for Dublin on our way home, and. Mr. O'Connell, who owned the restaurant we ate at, served us a lobster that came from the North Sea. And it was, re- it was really oh. funny because the guys in the West had said, there are no lobsters in the North Sea. <laughs> <laughs> but there were. I got, I got news for you. We, 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 we ate, ate two. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, the, let's, I want to mention a couple of things. There's, of course, all the, the natural qualities of your products. I mean, the, the clean air and the pristine waters and all of that. But there's also the phenomenon of, of young Irish chefs traveling abroad and bringing back a whole new concept of what food could be. Uh, you have all the influence of Ballymaloo. And, and I want to put in there something, too, that you have started a, a food, um, uh, what do we call it? Symposium. It's a, um, uh, he, call, a, he calls a it a symposium. It's a sort of symposium, okay. Um, to showcase your native products. And it's called Food on the Edge. And I thought it was an overcrowded field, but, um, uh, JP, you've made it a, a phenomenon in, in this uh, culinary world. And that has to expose chefs to your products successfully, and it does. Yeah, I think it gives us uh, more confidence, you know, in Ireland to to uh, to speak up, you know. And I think that I think a lot of times um, national cuisine or is 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 a, is a question of confidence, and I think it's often just about finding finding one's voice. And it's just uh, I think we didn't. Um, or we felt rather that we didn't have a voice, and I think definitely in my experience as well, it's just looking at other cuisines and how they would articulate themselves, and then realizing that that we we have all this stuff, and we just need to need to talk about it, you know, and need to invite people and uh, and and and, uh, and and speak about it. So that was that was something that 
for me was important. Now, what when, it, when we it, interviewed Darina, her theory is that um, instead of um, New Nordic and Noma, that Ireland could be in, in, in that place in the culinary universe. I think, I think so, and I think so. Like, of course, I, I would, I would, I would argue it's still, it's still uh, not even halfway there, and we have a lot more to do and to try. And I mean, a food culture doesn't arise because of that, uh, because of uh, products being good, and and the symposium is like it really takes the whole community, and it takes restaurants, and it takes people in the industry, it takes chefs and hoteliers, and it takes a lot of people to to come on board. And I mean, that's what we see in. Um, in the Nordics, in whether it's uh, Denmark or Sweden, Finland or, uh, or Norway, and I've been in all of them, and that's really what you see in, from from a cup of coffee to a croissant to a mission star meal to to a, a lunch. Everything is uh, is is, um, is 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 game in when it comes to I suppose the expression of a terroir, and I think that's really we have to think, take a very broad view of gastronomy, uh, a much broader view than we have had in the past. I think that's how we'll uh, how we'll represent ourselves. We we enjoyed sampling in in Galway, but also back home, the Gaelic snails. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, was, that, that was pretty. That was pretty brave. Yeah. They kept they kept them they kept them under the bed. <laughs> now, now these are, some of these recipes are super traditional, uh, uh, with modifications by a, a, an accomplished chef, I might add. But you've got your mum's shepherd's pie recipe, and one of your aunts. You have a recipe from her. And, and so forth. Yeah. But, but people could also go to this book and find dingle pies. What's the dingle pie? The dingle pie, like the pie tradition is very interesting. The pie tradition again comes over, I mean, migrates, uh, from probably from France to England and then to Ireland and, um, several kind of regional pies come up. But the dingle pie is probably the most famous and it's often made with mutton and it was baked and then Kind of dipped into 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 gravy, and it was celebrated at um, at, uh, at, uh, at this festival in in Dingle, and it, and it is still to this day in that. And I think it's the it's the regionality of food that is uh, that is I suppose most interesting. And and why I wanted to put in a few I suppose personal recipes was that I think it's important for people to realise that uh, that um, I suppose the, the food tradition is very much. In, in in them as well, you know, and people often feel disenfranchised because they feel like, well, I'm not connected to Irish food or whether it's any other food. But I mean, if, if we look back into our own histories and whether we look at our, our grandparents or our parents or our aunts and uncles, you'll see that there was a, a lot of recipe collecting and a lot of the first recipe books that were written in Ireland by by women again in the 17th century were, were I suppose, were collections of recipes to be able to pass down. So people wouldn't know how to cook, and people wouldn't know how to do things. And I suppose we've 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 forgotten about that tradition now because we have recipe books now just to to entertain us. And recipe recipe books now aren't uh, vital to life, or at one point they were because if you didn't if you didn't know how to cook, then uh, then you were very much in trouble because you couldn't you couldn't feed yourself. So um, I think it's important to, to look back into our own histories and. And, and to see how 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 I suppose how how my my parents and my my grandparents interacted with history, and you'll see various uh, elements in in that. 
Well, there are so many exciting recipes, listeners, in this book. I mean, you get all your basics, you know, um, that you associate with uh, how many kinds of soda bread you have listed. But you also have such things as stuffed beef heart with chestnuts and prunes, which is wonderful, right? And, and yeah. Yeah, and um, so you, you have to get the book and just kind of, it's a revelation page to page of what you're going to come across and find. And um, I think Peter has his eye on his spiced ox tongue. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, we have, we have, it's a great tradition of offal. Yeah, there's a great tradition of offal in Ireland, and then you, there's also a great tradition of spices as well, which, again, has came over with the with the Normans. The Normans loved their, um, their spices, so it's um, it's something that um, I think that we can um, that we can enjoy. Now here's here's the latest that I heard, and now let's let's get you to comment before we close on what you think this might mean, because the latest issue of the Economist newspaper, the the, yeah. co- the cover the cover is all green with a zipper describing oh. the boundary between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic where where you are. What do you think? Will happen to the to the food scene when Ireland becomes Ireland again, all all together. Um, it's hard to know. I mean, I think uh, in one sense Ireland is is is, is already um, all together in terms of its economy because of the, the Good Friday Agreement and also because of um, um, because of the EU. But again, there are there are those elements fraying. And um, it's um, it, it's very hard to know. I mean, hopefully there uh, there'll be a greater um, confidence, you know. And I, it was it was funny when I was told, when I was writing the book that I was considering Northern Ireland and how I suppose I, I took a, a product view of the of the of the of the island as opposed to taking a uh, a county by county view. But I could have easily uh, looked at different. Um, Different counties, and I mean Northern Ireland is very, very strong when it comes to um, when it comes to food and and uh, and its tradition as well. I mean, it's even yeah, it's just very uh, very mixed up. But yeah, it's hard to know how how it will go and if if, if um, whatever sort of deal the the UK gets and how that kind of pulls us and um, how that pulls us at the north and and what that does. Because um, I suppose the north is changing for a long time. It was a very much a majority of people who, who identified themselves with um, with Great Britain, and now the majority is is is, is very I suppose very much um, people identify with Ireland. But it's still uh, the other forty percent or forty five percent are still want to be part of the UK. So it is a very difficult place. But I always think as well that the it is it is a in between space, and it can it can very much. Um, um, learn how to work that, and I think that's something we haven't done either. Now, here's an interesting way to finish finish out our interview because we started with a song, right? No, don't you dare. Across the <laughs> island. No, the, the next one to close with is a long way to Tipperary. The funny part about it is yeah. it's really not very far at all to Tipperary. <laughs> <laughs> and, no, and that, I think, that, and that's a message for our listeners because the wonderful part about Ireland is it's it's. Very accessible. I mean, it's just yeah, not, and it's very, it's just not it's very, very small. No, and when I'm particularly from the, when you're coming from the states and like nearby, it might be 200 miles away. 
200 miles is the other side of the island in Ireland, so it's uh, <laughs> it's not it's not a very big place. And I think the the intimacy that uh, Ireland offers, and and a lot of um, speakers, particularly those from the from the states or from from India who've come over to Food and the Edge, have actually like even uh, gave me a greater appreciation of the kind of the smallness of Ireland and even some of, it, some of its roads and its hedges and its hedgerows and the fields. And I think often we, we don't appreciate those, but we're kind of, we're, we're in a rush to, we're in a rush to modernize always and, and to kind of exact, to kind of copy what has been done, whether on the European mainland or, or in the U.S. and build more and more ways than that. But I think sometimes it's good to, to kind of take a step back and actually just look at a small country road and appreciate the kind of deep history. And so there's actually a chef in Boston who had said to me, we just don't have roads like that in the U.S. And um, True. we uh, and and often we just we, we don't even notice them, you know. Well, J- JP, well, this book well, will go a long way, I think. To, yeah, let's uh, let's uh, listen. If you, if you want there to be a second book called the Irish, oh, well, I've started I've started writing the fish one. So I, I had, I had so many oh, fish recipes. I had so many fish recipes left. I said I might as well start another one because um, the fish section was actually the biggest in the book and. We had that. Uh, well, we 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 had to um, try and represent each area, so we, we pulled a lot out of that. And I mean, I love fish and shellfish. And me seaweed too. Me and too. I love it. Now I've around. already talked about oysters and lobsters, and there's just so much. There's so much there in not only in in terms of contemporary cooking, but also in historical cooking. There's like loads of oyster recipes that I couldn't put in. Like oysters cooked with butter and nutmeg, and the very stuff that we wouldn't cook anymore, but I still think stuff that is really interesting, and oysters cooked in beef dripping, and things again that are, that are just not um, not done anymore. And I think it's important to try and um, to, to to record them. Young ma- young man, we better send you back in the kitchen. Probably, it's probably, <laughs> it's probably, probably some hungry, probably some hungry people wondering where you are. Thank you so much for yeah. joining us today. Jeffy, good to talk to you. Thanks very much, Kyle. I'll talk to you soon. We'll see you in October. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Okay, so next up we've got Chef Demetrios Haralambatos. Haralambatos. Oh, well well done, well done. (laughs) I I, I just like to say it, Haralambatos. Anyhow, um, who is, you may note from his name, Greek, and the uh, corporate chef for um, Contos, uh, which is, um, it makes all kinds of, all kinds of Greek products, um, but it's really renowned for its Fabulous flatbread! I can't get enough of it. So anyhow, and 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 Chef Demetrios has been the I don't know guiding light there for how long now? A long, long time. Two or three decades at least. Yeah, and so we're going to talk to to him about Greek food. I'm going to be talking excitedly talking to Chef Demetrios Harolambatos. Of Contus Foods. I mean, I love Contus Foods. I love all their flatbreads. Um, I eat Contus breads regularly, and I'm not really that big of a carb person. 
Um, so, Chef, since you're involved with this, you can take part credit for this. Well, I should be able to take uh, credit for this thing. I've been doing it for 24 years for Qantas Foods. Uh-huh. <laughs> the funny thing is, Demetrius, we, we were just talking about who who should own the Elgin Marbles. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> just, 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 that was on Yahoo New, just, no, it was in just, the New York just, Times. Just, be, just before we came on the air. So yeah. you can express your opinion if you'd like. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we're going to get into that one. It's, I don't know. I don't understand how the EU just got into it. But anyhow, okay. Um, we are supposed to be talking about um, Greek cuisine, um, which I adore. Um, we're going to talk about the long-standing food traditions, as well as newer trends. I have not been to Greece actually since the Olympics were there, and I heard things change dr- dramatically. Is that true? Well, um, again, I have not been there for a number of years, but uh, it is true. The political scene has changed. The uh, the dining experiences have changed. Yes, there are still many, many Greek uh, restaurants, but there's an influx of German. There's an what? influx of Italian. Uh, Germans are utilizing Greece in the last 10 years as their go-to holiday or vacation. Right, right, that, right. Was, uh, yeah, yeah, that yeah. was a hangover from um, the occupation of World War II. Because um, uh, I remember, because I did not speak Greek when I was in Greece, uh, I did get by with, I mean, I look so Greek, and basically everybody assumed if, if I could say a Faristopoli with the right accent, that they could speak to me in Greek. And so, <laughs> so, but at any rate, I didn't speak Greek, but I got by on Italian, um, but I would have done much better because they were all going to Italian universities, but I would have done much better if my second language was German. Definitely, definitely. So that goes back a long ways. But, you know, uh, using the term, it goes back a long ways. If we do some research, we find that uh, one of the first cookbooks ever written was written uh, in 200 B.C. Right. And it was a seven-volume, uh, I'm sorry, an 11-volume um, book, which was called Zipnofotisthes, or um, Those That Dine. And uh, within it, it not only gave you proper etiquette on how to eat and what have you, but there was numerous, numerous mentions of um, how to prepare certain things so that they were very palatable. Well, you know, I mean, I, I honestly have never had a bad meal in Greece, except, I think, on one occasion when I ate in a tourist hotel dining room. Otherwise, the food was spectacular. Now, I don't understand why in the United States, the the really top-notch Greek cooking has never gotten hold. And I told you I actually had a Greek restaurant in Philadelphia. So, Uh but it was very traditional Greek food. You know, I mean, it was, 
It, I don't know what, what they've done by way of evolving uh, in Greece itself, since most of the Greeks in this country really came over as Victorian Greeks. I, uh, I, I really can't um, uh, answer the uh, regarding the transition from Greece into America. But I will say this about uh, the Greek heritage within America. When one goes to Greece, uh, particularly having grown up in America because Yahya was teaching the kids, yeah. and uh, when we here in America speak a more pure Greek, mm-hmm. we here in America dance, the classic Greek dances, which most of the kids in Greece do not know. Oh, no. The, um, uh, the most popular thing in Greece for the last five, six, maybe ten years has been disco music. Oh, yeah. And they're trying to apply Greek to the disco music in this bump, 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 <laughs> uh, rhythm. And uh, uh, they have bypassed what was their original heritage. Um which is a shame, but in Australia, uh, specifically in Melbourne, that I could speak yeah. of, in Korea, um, in parts of South Africa and Mozambique, we have large Greek communities that are maintaining not only the heritage, the language, but as well as the dining experience. You know, we lived uh, right outside of Melbourne, and... Um uh, we had a neighbor who grow who grew uh, grapes, and I used to go and pick his grape leaves for my uh-huh. <laughs> for my stuffed grape leaves. It was wonderful. Yeah. Now, um, did you make the did you make the rice dill version, or did I you did make lamb. the meat and rice? I did lamb and rice. Lamb and rice, yeah, indeed. Now that's the way to do it with an excellent egg lemon sauce on top of that. Oh yeah, right. Oh. Oh, indeed. indeed. <laughs> well, let, let, let's let this man talk about his tucker. Huh? Yeah, let's talk about this. what do you describe? What you? How would you describe Greek food? Uh, I would describe Greek food as a. Let me see. How would I describe Greek food? Other than the word delicious, yeah, uh, it is. I would. I would describe Greek food as farm to table, as is a common uh, phrase here in America. Uh, Early on, and I would say uh, as late as uh, 30 years ago, the average restaurant was being served uh, with vegetables and meats that were grown or harvested within the area, the community that they were servicing. Um, It is a healthy diet. It is uh, one of the most healthiest things that one can consume is Greek olive oil. Right. Couple that with a fresh tomato and a loaf of bread or a couple of uh, loaves of, of pita bread and you're in heaven. That is a meal in and of itself. Right. Now, there's somebody who we interviewed who, what, he has special 
what's the name of the guy with the island that was a, um, a, a blue zone island? Well, I don't remember the name of the island. I mean, I remember the guy. He was a nuclear. He was a nuclear physicist. What else would you like to know? Yeah, but he he had a program where he had um, tourists coming and actually participating in in the agriculture and so forth. And, and he, he helped a lo- he helped a local community get their shit together in terms yeah. of gourmet tourism. That's it. Yeah, that's how you phrase it. I, guess. <laughs> I, I try. Well. Uh, uh, Greece has come a long way, particularly in agriculture. Uh, in fact, to uh, today, uh, many people who own almond groves have been coming to America, going to a town called Ripon, California, which is just outside of Stockton, and uh, learning how to utilize American machinery. They have also gone to UC Davis and have started to graft Greek almond trees or almond uh, 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 roots to peach trees. And the result of this has uh, come out with a richer almond, a richer American almond, but in Greece, a typical almond, once it was hulled, would only have 15 to 22% of meat within it. The balance was all shell that was thrown away, and it was a hard shell. And by grafting the Greek almond trees to American peach trees, the reverse took place. 15 to 18% of uh, the shell and the balance was all meat, and it was uh, it is far more profitable to be uh, growing almonds now because back, I'm going to go 30 years, 20 years ago, a lot of people in the area around Salonica were uprooting their almond trees and planting kiwis. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. Well, why, why not? I mean, why not? Well, um, are these people... I mean, Blue Diamond is probably the largest almond producer out of California in the whole world. Well, Blue Diamond is, uh, for lack of a better word, a cooperative. Uh Right. A large number of farmers commit all their growth to Blue Diamond. Right. No, the representative of Blue Diamond that we interviewed said that 80% of the world's Almonds come from California. Eighty percent. That's high. Eighty percent. That's what she said, and I've no no reason to doubt her. She was, she was in that business. I had not. I had not heard about the grafting onto that sounds peach cool. trees, though. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Well, you know, almonds. Uh, almonds are uh, almonds are a valuable commodity. Uh, not only because, let's say, us Greeks use it in baklava. Uh, the French use it in uh, dining, adding slivered almonds upon uh, seafood, uh, incorporating the almonds and uh, making um, marzipan. Uh, it, it is a valuable commodity, but there's also nutritional values. The oils out of an almond are fantastic. And for a period of time, there was cancer research. Yeah, I um, that. <laughs> regarding the oils from an almond. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I, I don't know if that ever came to anything, but um, the, what are the, would you say, from your perspective, um, the, the biggest misconceptions about Greek food? Um, well, the average American can see Greek food as, oh, gee, it's something available at a diner. And not that Greek diners or even non-Greek diners are offering food that is imposters of Greek dining. Um, they are eating the same thing, a, a gyro sandwich. They're eating a, a moussaka. They're eating perhaps a pasticcio. And what is a Greek salad? Well, a Greek salad is anything that has uh, a little bit of feta crumbled on top of it. <laughs> but that is not the total Greek dining. No, I understand. The, the Greek dining experience is far deeper than that. It is lavished with seafood. It is a lot of vegetables. It's utilizing different types of legumes, um, making soups out of chickpeas, making soups out of different types of lentils, whether they're the purple lentil or the green uh, lentil, which a lot of people call a split pea, or the golden lentils. Um, it is a... A lot of the Greek dishes are what I will call casserole-style. Uh, again, going back to the moussaka, which is prepared in sections and then assembled together and then baked. Um, but the way we roast our lamb... But we don't just roast a lamb. We'll turn around and butterfly it, and like in, in on the island of Crete, they will add feta and roll up the feta within um, the lamb that has been butterflied. The although there is not that much pork that's utilized in Greece, a Greek pork chop will knock your socks off. Hmm. And then, of course, there's the wines. Uh, the Greek wine industry had fallen uh, on the wayside, but has really, really oh, come yeah. back. Yeah, it used to be only Red Sea, which was horrible. <laughs> now it's good. Yeah. Well, there's there, there's reason was why uh, Retina was horrible, mm -hmm. uh, or still is, for that matter. Yeah. And tastes like petroleum uh, yeah, exactly. or kerosene. Well, it was, actually. <laughs> well, what happened during the Ottoman Empire, um, the imam was paid, or the pasha was paid, in his weight, in wine. And, or okay, olive got oil. It, got it, okay. And what happened was that the Greeks would sit down and whatever wine was not paid to the pasha they would turn around and they would consume it, they would get drunk, and they would be rebellious. So <laughs> some smart Ottomans turned around and said, wait a minute, why don't we put tree resin into the wine? Okay. It'll taste horrible, no one will drink it. <laughs> well, in fact, the Greeks loved it. It gave them a better headache and they were more rebellious. <laughs> so so oh, by Independence Day in 1821... Um, the Greeks gained their independence from the Ottoman Empire, and by 1826, they passed a law, and they said, okay, we don't have to put resin anymore in the wine, 
and it's prohibited to do so. Well, that caused another rebellion because the Greeks wanted and had gotten accustomed to drinking this turpentine smelling and tasting drink. (laughs) And the law had to be rescinded and they started putting resin back into the white wine. Oh dear. I remember we we went once one of the trips to a restaurant in New York City called Molivos. Molivos, yes. Some some whoever whoever was waiting on us, I think it must have been the manager because we did an interview with him, and he produced some really exceptionally good oh, yeah. Greek wines. So so we knew we knew Greek wines were back. Yes, well, you know, like from my home island, a family called Caligas. Uh, had been producing some excellent wines, but these wines were, uh, the winery was acquired by a French company, mm. and uh, the name, uh, the Caligas wines disappeared off the market because they were being labeled as something else, but they u- were utilizing the Greek grapes and making Italian wines with it. And this is a French company. And then all of a sudden they figure, wait, 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 let's just uproot the um, uh, some of the roots, replant, transplant them in Italy and France, and we don't have to worry about Greece. Well, they then divested themselves of the company, and the Caligar family has already picked up again on that. Uh, In fact, there's a lady in uh, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, who has gone through the process of importing uh, seedlings from Greece. Uh, They had to be quarantined because of uh, uh, USDA law, and they were quarantined for five years, and then they were sent to UC Davis to be grafted and then brought back to North Carolina, and she has started a winery that is specializing in Greek wines made from Greek seedlings. And she calls herself Kefi, uh, K-E-F-F-I, meaning free spirit. Great. So how do we get some of this? Um, You'll have to come down to Charlotte, I guess. (laughs) That's how I get it. (laughs) Yeah, well, it was a big food scene in Charlotte, I guess. Um, you know, before we go, I think we should mention that, because I've talked about Contos' flatbreads, um, and they're, they're wonderful. There's a huge variety of them. But Contos also um, markets, uh, imports and markets other Greek products, uh, such as olive oil, right? Well, let me, let, let me, let me back up for a second and, and talk about flatbreads, if you will permit me. Sure. Uh, I the love Quantos, them. <laughs> the Quantos flatbread is different from most other flatbreads made here stateside in that we u- utilize an old method of what's called the dough ball method as opposed to a die cut. And uh, to describe the difference to you, when you're making cookies, you roll out the dough, you take a cookie cutter, and you cut out your cookies. What do you do with the rest of the dough? You punch it down, you reassemble it, re-roll it out, and continue to uh, make your individual cookies until you run out of dough. Well, 
that's okay when you're making something that doesn't have yeast in it. Pita bread, flatbreads have yeast in them. And the moment you have die-cut that and you try to re-ball the um, dough and then roll it out, you are killing the yeast and the bread won't rise. So by making individual dough balls and proofing individual dough balls and hand-stretching individual dough balls, you are getting a more natural bread. You're getting a bread that will be fluffier because it's hand-stretched and individually made. And this has been the Contos practice from day one. We do not die-cut our bread. Interesting. Um, I didn't know that. Plus, we have expanded our bread line that it is not only the classic Greek pocketless right. pita. Um, we make an entire line of Southeast Asian breads such as kulcha naan, rogani naan, uh, misiroti, um, uh, onion naan, um, and each being an authentic replication of that product. It's not just, oh, let's just make a masala naan by putting masala powder in there. No, we use the actual fresh spices. We do not use artificial flavors or oleoresins and aqua resins in the process of making our breads. But to expand on what you had said, we also, uh, the Mr. Contos was the man who invented the mechanized method of making filo dough. Oh, I'd and, need that, I'll tell you. <laughs> and we make filo dough in four different thicknesses and effectively two different textures. Uh, but you can't live on dough alone. So we do a value-added. We make baklava. We make sarahli or nut rolls. Uh, we make kataifi. And we make a full line of Eastern Mediterranean uh, pastries all along the baklava line. Nobody Bridge. told me about that. I mean, <laughs> I never got any of that stuff. That's really great. Well, we also make the um, the Lebanese and Syrian baliria and berma. Really? Uh, we not only use walnuts and almonds in the Greek-style baklava, we also making the Eastern Mediterranean style, utilizing pistachios, oh, or wow. the Egyptian style where we use uh, cashews. Well, is this all on your website? All this information is on our website. Now, uh, beyond that, what we do, <coughs> excuse me, uh, we also import cheeses from Greece. Uh, we provide a olive oil from Greece, Kalamata olives from Greece. Um, we also have dolmadas that we have selected a really? manufacturer to make it to our specifications. Yeah, are they pretty good, dolmadas? Because mine are really good. <laughs> well, the, the, these are the vegetarian dolmadas. Oh, they okay. are the rice only. Um, yeah, I know those. Yeah. I'm sorry? I said I know about those. Yeah. Well, that's great. What is the website again? Our website is www.contos.com. Great. That's straightforward enough. And if you can't remember that, 
just go to www.flatbreadoneword.com. Okay. Well, yeah, no, I, I just, uh, I, I, I'm very impressed with it. Everything's very fresh, and you don't always get that. And, of course, I view Greek food like that, too. So um, it's great chatting with you about um, my favorite cuisine, uh, Chef Demetrios, and um, have have a good time in um are you in Annapolis, you said? Okay, in Annapolis, if you're ever in Annapolis, the weekend after Memorial Day, forgive me, I'm going to give you a commercial message from my church. Okay. Uh, we run the Annapolis Greek Festival, and that's on the Internet as AnnapolisGreekFestival.org. There are 38 items on our menu. Wow. And we serve from gyro sandwiches to what we call Athenian sandwiches. Uh, we also make kleftiko, a uh, a lamb shank, an 18-ounce oh, lamb shank. You got me potato. there. I love them. Oh. Yep. We, we make food sing to you. <laughs> I believe you. I believe you. So, yeah, food, food, food better sing to me too pretty soon. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, anyhow, I hope we'll talk again, Chef. And It'll be my pleasure. All right. And, and, and God bless you. I'd love to be at your festival. Talk to your visitors bureau about that one. I'd love to go to that. We we have a couple of Greek festivals in, in Pittsburgh, and they're very good too. Oh yes, you guys have a couple of good ones. Yes, there. we do. So I love Greek food. Love talking to you, and thank you for calling. Thank you. It is my pleasure. God bless. Bye bye. You too. Bye. So there you have it. Until the same time, same place next week. And until then, bye-bye.